Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Government is the problem. This will not stand. This will not stand, this aggression against uh, Kuwait. Indeed, I did have a relationship with Ms. Lewinsky that was not appropriate. America is a strong force for peace. I know the human being and fish can coexist peacefully. And my vice president has shot someone. Do you smell what Barack is cooking? You didn't build that. Give you all a big kiss, the women and the men. I'll, kiss, I'll even kiss the men. I'll kiss those big, powerful men. Sit down, you'll hear what I have to say. Welcome to the program, my huddled masses. It is I, Jordan Driscoll, your host for Context is for Kings, your industry malcontent and ATM of reckless opinion. Grab yourself a cup of coffee and let's get into it. And this evening I've got myself a uh, a nice rich Colombian roast here, nice and tasty. Mm. There we go, we got the inaugural sip out of the way. Let's do this thing. Okay, so a little bit of housekeeping. By the time this episode drops, NAEP will have already been concluded. Although, ironically enough, it's actually a Sunday evening, and tomorrow I'm heading down to Houston uh, to attend NAEP. So hopefully I will have seen some of you guys there, and uh, that'll have been fun. Hopefully I will not have died of uh, massive damage to my liver, which NAEP often inflicts upon me. But for the time being, I am still alive and kicking. And I'm even getting this show out for you guys. That's that's dedication right there in the face of adversity. Okay, so that's one thing. Second, we, um, I say we, the royal we, the editorial we, got a very nice comment from Robert Sprinkle on um, LinkedIn. Uh, I had some very kind words to say about the show, and I deeply appreciate it. Just wanted to say thank you if you're listening, Robert. Um, if you are listening to this program and you are enjoying it, please feel free to leave a rating and a review on iTunes or wherever it is you listen to your uh, podcasts. It certainly helps out the show over here. It helps us get out to a broader audience. And um, if you're not liking the show, that's okay. Just go find a podcast you do like. There's like a billion of them out there. And uh, as I often like to say, life's too short to listen to a podcast you don't like. And um, the last thing in the housekeeping section we'll target here is that there is now Context is for King swag, specifically a coffee mug with the show cover art on it. Now, I find it a little laughable um, that the show has any kind of swag, uh, but but it does. But what's more unbelievable is that somebody, some folks, multiple people, have actually already been out there buying these things, which I find kind of shocking. I'm flattered and honored and all that. But I just can't believe people would buy a, a coffee mug from the show. So uh, that's very cool. If you want one, by all means, go to the uh, OGGN website. There's a little merch store thing there. And, uh, yeah, grab yourself one if you feel like you need a coffee mug with my mug on it. Um, I, I am getting myself one uh, so that I, w- I feel like I have to, and I have to have my, my show coffee in my show mug. Um so yeah, I guess I guess we're gonna do that. I guess that's that's. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm contractually obligated to do that. I'll have to look at my my paperwork from the business daddy, Mark Lacour. But uh, I do think I uh, I'm required to <laughs> have my coffee mug for my show. I don't know. I just still think it's funny. I think it's kind of crazy that that's a thing. But I, yeah, it's cool. It's fine. Uh, all right. So what's coming down the pipeline? So by the time you guys get this, you'll have already received uh, the Mexico special episode part one. 
Uh, I will be doing a follow-up part two to that to cover the more recent history in Mexico and, and all of that. I was going to do that for this week, but I had another question that I wanted to tackle, and I didn't have enough time to do all the research I needed to do on the Mexico episode. So uh, that one will probably be in two weeks, I imagine. Um, this week I'll be recording uh, at NAEP and, and whatever that show looks like. So that'll be the uh, the one after this one, and then after that I'll, I'll try and hit that Mexico part two. Assuming some sort of a major world crisis hasn't kicked off that I have to address in a... Uh, you know, expeditious fashion. So that's kind of what we got coming down the pipeline. But for tonight, I got a question from a listener who wanted a, sort of a brief explanation of the major players that are in the Middle East right now in this brewing conflict that's happening. And so I'm going to give a little bit of a mini dive on some of those, kind of who they are, where they came from, uh, why the fuck that they're uh, causing all the trouble they're causing right now, how involved is Iran really and and all of that? And also, you know, where do we think we're likely to go from here, at least as I see it right this second? So that's that's what we're going to go into tonight. So to give you a brief summary of the current situation, uh, as you know, there's the Israel-Hamas war that kicked off back in October. And we've talked a little bit about that on this program. And unless you're living under a rock, you know that's happening. Now, Hamas crossed over into the border in Israel, killed a bunch of people, took a bunch of hostages. Israel, of course, uh, has conducted a massive retaliation on the Gaza Strip in exchange, and that has escalated across the entire Middle East with pretty much any and every uh, Iranian-backed proxy militant group going up in arms and just all sorts of nonsensical chaos erupting. But there's a lot of different groups with a lot of different motivations, and it's kind of a messy, spiderweb, sloppy situation to be in. Now, why this is important and why this question got asked of me is because on January 28th, as you're also probably aware, there was a drone strike in Jordan at a base where some U.S. soldiers were at, and three U.S. service members were killed and several dozen more were injured. Uh, now, the drone strike occurred when the drone defensive systems at the base were down while a U.S. drone was coming in for a landing. And basically, the uh, enemy drone used that window of opportunity to come in, hit the building, killed some folks, and uh, first off, hearts go out to the families of those uh, service members who were killed. I believe all three, from what I read, were from the state of Georgia, which is my home state. Uh, so... Uh, I'm deeply sorry to the uh, the families of those folks that uh, have uh, have those service members who lost their lives. That's tragic and yeah, it's uh, well. I, I what more can I say? I mean, it's 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 terrible that uh, you know anytime anytime a soldier dies, it's terrible. But uh, that's definitely not not the way you want to go. Um, so of course there had to be something done, right? We all knew there was going to be, uh, or thought it was very probable there was going to be some sort of retaliation. Biden had even said almost instantly that uh, the U.S. would respond at a time and place of its choosing, which was a fairly aggressive, although expected, stance from Biden to take. And on February 2nd, the U.S. conducted a series of significant retaliatory strikes against various forces in the Middle East, specifically in Iraq and Syria. They launched uh, 125 plus different munitions against 85 different targets across Iraq and Syria. That's a pretty big hit. That's, that's hitting a lot of different things. 
And one thing is that was a surprisingly strong reaction from Biden. A lot of people have commented that was a lot more uh, oomph than they thought the sarcophagus of Joe Biden was going to be wheeling out for this sort of thing. But you have to remember, he is a president with particularly low approval ratings right now, and it is the middle of an election year that is going to be a tough race for him to win. Uh, We've talked about it a little bit in the past, but yeah, I mean, Biden, you know, he's not enamored himself with people. And there's tons of folks that are sick of the Donald Trump baggage, but Biden is not exactly anybody's first pick for who they want running against him as a serious contender. So Biden had to do something, and he conducted a fairly large strike. Uh, so, yeah, that's that's kind of where we're at there. Um, at the end of the day, what we've got here is 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 a very complicated geopolitical situation. And we're going to start by talking about the IRGC um, and the Quds Force and the Armed Forces of Iran. Now, the IRGC or the uh, Iranian or Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, as it's called, is something you probably see in the news a lot. And one of the things that a lot of folks don't quite understand is that the Revolutionary Guard Corps, I'll call it for short, is not exactly the same thing as the actual armed forces of Iran. Let me kind of break it down rather uh, rather briskly here. The armed forces of Iran are the traditional Army, Navy, Air Force, military forces of the Iranian state. Their job is to protect Iran's borders and to uphold the nation's sovereignty and to conduct traditional military operations when called upon by the supreme leader, uh, Ayatollah Khomeini or whatever, um, uh, or the president of the country, as needed. Um, the Revolutionary Guard Corps, on the other hand, is a bit different. It is a military arm, um, although it's probably easier to think of the Revolutionary Guard Corps as sort of a secondary military. It's almost like a completely separate service. It has its own Revolutionary Guard Corps Navy, which are all those boats that harass U.S. vessels and others uh, in the in the Red Sea. It's got um, its own Revolutionary Guard Corps Air Force, its own Revolutionary Guard Corps ground forces, and it even has the elite Quds Force. Now, the reason it's a separate branch is historically relevant. Keep in mind, the religious theocracy that rules Iran right now came about from a revolution against the Shah back in 79. And one of the things that the religious class was very concerned about, and historically there's lots of context for it, both in the Middle East and elsewhere, was the possibility that the military was more loyal to the Shah and there might be a counter-revolution from the military to try and topple this religious theocracy. And so part of the way to counterbalance the threat the military posed to this new government was to create a second military that was entirely motivated by religion and theocracy and loyalty to the new regime. They still needed a standing army. They still needed a standing air force and Navy to handle all the day-to-day guarding of the borders. But what they wanted was a special separate military that answered uh, directly to the new revolutionary council and the new revolutionary government that was religiously loyal to them. And they couldn't quite guarantee that with the military they inherited from the Shah. Ergo, there is effectively two standing militaries, two complete militaries uh, in Iran, 
and one of them is the traditional armed forces, the other is the Revolutionary Guard Corps. You'll also occasionally hear about the uh, Quds Force, Q-U-D-S. Um, what is that? Well, that's the branch of the Revolutionary Guard Corps that the closest parallels that I could draw would be uh, equivalent to U.S. Green Berets or perhaps uh, British, you know, uh, SAS or something like that. Basically, the Cuts Force's job is to be the uh, unconventional warfare experts of the Revolutionary Guard Corps. Now, what they do is they go into other countries. They identify people that have motivations and ideologies that may be somewhat in line with Iran's. They train these forces, teach them how to operate like guerrillas. They smuggle weapons to them. They they train them. They provide logistical support. They give them tactical advice occasionally and set them on their way to go do whatever it is they're trying to do. Now, Iran has, since the beginning, considered itself to be the vanguard of a Islamic revolutionary movement. And as a result, since the late 70s, early 80s, when they took control of Iran, their goal has been to try and export that revolution throughout the Middle East and ideally the world to get their brand of Islam to be the Islam. And uh, and and that's sort of been their, their overriding goal. The way they've exported this revolution uh, is through these groups, Hamas, the Houthis, uh, Hezbollah, etc. Now, one of the problems <clears throat> uh, historically was Iraq, okay? Prior to the U.S. invasion of Iraq in the 2000s, uh, there was a big fat thing standing in their way, and that big fat thing was Saddam bitchin' mustache Hussein, Saddam did not care for the Ayatollah or Iran or any of that that was happening. And the reason for that is that part of the Iranian um, uh, philosophy was that political parties and monarchies and things like that were a huge part of the problem and that all political parties should be absolved, all monarchies should be absolved, and the only thing that should rule is effectively the Islamic religion itself. And when you're a dictator from a political party who rose to power through political means, that's not the kind of thing you like sharing a border with you. Hence why Iraq and Iran have had a contentious relationship in the past. That's also one of the reasons why Saudi Arabia is not super jazzed about Iran. They have a different uh, flavor of Islam over there. And that flavor of Islam says there shouldn't be any monarchies. And when you're a monarchy, that's not the thing you want to hear. So... This is why Iran has had some dicey relationships with a lot of its Middle Eastern neighbors, especially those uh, monarchy Gulf states that we all know and love. Uh, so therein lies the crux of their issue. Now, back when Saddam bitchin' mustache Hussein was running the show in Iraq, he held an iron grip on the country. And don't get me wrong, Saddam was a bad guy. There's no argument here. But one of the things that was <clears throat> a net positive was that he hemmed in Iran quite well. He put the kibosh. You could not transport anything through uh, Iraq or I Iraq to other parts of the Middle East. He would straight up invade them if he felt like it, which there was a long, decade-long uh, war. We did an episode about that a while back. But the point is, he put the kibosh on a lot of the more expansionist and aggressive foreign policy efforts that the Ayatollah wanted. 
<clears throat> because they were effectively diametrically opposed forces. Well, once you get rid of Saddam and his bitchin' mustache, and you get an extremely unstable and only partially functioning government in Iraq, well, there's no control over that border. That border now becomes a land route to various places like uh, Lebanon and Syria and elsewhere where the Revolutionary Guard Corps can uh, send their Quds forces to, to export that revolution, which is, again, what Iran's ultimate goal has been since day one, is to get that revolution exported to as many places in the Middle East to set up as many Iran-style Islamic governments as they possibly can. So that's what they've been working on for the most part this whole time. And you hear a lot about the term axis of resistance. And the idea is that Iran propagates this theory or this, this mentality of uh, part of what we do, aside from having our own special brand of Islam and, and religious theocracy, is we resist any outsiders that would be a quote-unquote corrupting influence on our religious beliefs. And the U.S. is obviously considered to be a very corrupting influence <clears throat> and ergo the problems we have. So Saddam goes down, they start exporting their revolution to various other countries, Hezbollah being sort of the first historical uh, successful exportation of said revolution. But now there's various different factors that they're supporting, these proxy forces. So now that we understand kind of what the Quds Force is and the Revolutionary Guard Corps and the armed forces of Iran, let's talk about what some of those proxy forces are. Well, the most obvious one to know about is Hamas. That's kind of who kicked off this current situation. So Hamas, to give you a uh, – and again, I'm not doing a full historical deep dive in this. I could do a full episode on each of these organizations, but we, you know, we, we don't have time for all that. Mm. Oh, that coffee is good. I'm have another sip of that. That's good coffee. Mm. Yes, yeah, that's that's what we need right there. Okay, so Hamas. Hamas is both a militant organization, a radical organization, and um, a political organization. And again, just sort of glossing over the history at a very brisk pace here. <clears throat> Hamas came to power. Uh, I mean, his organizations existed in uh, the Gaza Strip and the West Bank and those areas for, for quite a while, a few decades. But they really came to power in the early 2000s. In 2006, Hamas managed to get themselves elected to the representative council, the government of the Palestinian people in Gaza Strip and that represented Palestine. Now, there's a whole lot of conversation to be had about the divide between the Palestinians and the Israelis and, you know, what that's supposed to look like. But suffice it to say that back in 2006, the Hamas that we have today was not the same as the Hamas back then. 20 years ago, Hamas was a bit of a different organization. Now, they were not saints, don't get me wrong, but they were not nearly as radical as they are today. The Hamas, who got themselves elected to government office and managed to get control of the representative government of the Palestinian people— was a lot less hard-ass. Yes, they would still say that they would use violence to further their goals and uh, get representation for the Palestinians and all of this, but they also said that they would support a two-state solution. They said they would support uh, the possibility of some kind of path to eventually potentially recognize Israel's right to exist and Israel is its own nation. And that's a real big change from the Hamas of today. The Hamas of today 
is absolutely not on board with recognizing Israel, nor are they on board with any sort of a two-state solution. They are as far radicalized as it gets. So what happened? Well, hard to say, but at the end of the day, Hamas changed. They went further and further down the rabbit hole of radicalization. And I could talk a lot about sort of the specifics on that, but it would be a long conversation. But the, the point is, a lot of people these days talk about, uh, at least in the United States, uh, well, you know, the Palestinians elected Hamas, uh, so this is this is the sort of thing they want. Not necessarily. Once Hamas got into office, and keep in mind, they ran on a platform that was way less radical than how they're operating today. But once they got into office, they just straight up stopped having elections. They just appoint their people to those roles now. There are not free and fair or elections of any sort for them to earn the merit of staying in office. They just got there and decided, yeah, yeah, we like it here. This is it. We're now in charge, and we're going to keep it that way. And then over the course of the next 20 years, got considerably more and more radicalized. Hamas's more or less stated goal is to uh, ensure that Israel is a pariah state as best they can and to try and wipe it out and make all of that land, you know, Palestine or something like that. That's ostensibly what Hamas wants. That's their end goal. And don't get me wrong, this falls right in line with Iran. Iran does not recognize Israel. They're against anybody that does recognize Israel. It's a a huge diplomatic issue that the Israelis face. And Hamas is a great partner for Iran, <clears throat> Iran because those two goals align perfectly. So, once the uh, the the land route through Iraq was uh, available with Saddam out of the way, it was very easy for them to start smuggling supplies and weapons and support and doing all of their usual shady shit to try and make Hamas more and more of a threat. And the odds are pretty good that, I mean, if you look at the timing, <clears throat> Hamas wasn't quite as radical prior to 2006 when they got elected. And then what's happening around that time? Oh, you've got the U.S. invasion of Iraq, Saddam's gone, chaos is unfolding across uh, Iraq, and all of a sudden, boom, they start getting more and more radical. Why? Well, probably because Iranians were slipping in and you know, working their dark arts. The timing at least works out on that. So, that brings us to the, 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 the next question. Why did Hamas attack in October? What did they hope to gain? Well, let's be honest. Israel has the best military in the Middle East. I mean, hell, a great vast amount of it is American equipment. They have a very well-trained, very capable military force that they're not afraid to use. And historically, Israel has a real good track record of winning fights with their neighbors if and when called upon to do so. So did Hamas really think that they were going to win this fight with Israel? Did they really think that this was going to be the attack that would drive Israel into the sea and, and get them what they wanted? Well, no, of course not. We have to assume they knew better than that. I mean, let's be honest. There was no way this scrappy terrorist group of ragtag rebels was going to topple Israel. And the nature of the attack was such to ensure that that wasn't even an objective. They crossed the border, blew up lots of shit, killed a lot of people, and took a lot of hostages. It was an atrocious attack that was only going to ever have one logical outcome, and that outcome was a massive Israeli reprisal, which Israel is obliged. And I think 
that was the point. They wanted Israel to attack them. They wanted Israel to overattack them, to overextend, and not for any tactical reason necessarily. You see, here's the deal. Hamas didn't have a big window to make a move. Ever since Israel's inception, they have been a pariah state with the Arab nations. But over the years, that has slowly changed. Obviously, the U.S. and Russia and China and all these places recognize Israel, but all of their neighbors have always been historically quite hostile to Israel. And we've covered that on previous episodes. But what should be noted is that that has been changing in the past 30 years. First, Egypt, once a massively contentious enemy of Israel, recognized Israel's right to exist and even established normalized diplomatic relations. Hell, there's a ton of trade between Israel and Egypt these days. Then Jordan turned around and recognized Israel and now has a fairly good working relationship with Israel. And then it gets even worse. Places like Qatar, Bahrain, the United Arab Emirates all start recognizing Israel as a, as a state, recognizing its right to exist alongside a Palestinian state, and normalizing relations. And the granddaddy of them all, Saudi Arabia, one of the last major holdouts in the Middle East who has not yet thrown their hat in the ring of officially acknowledging Israel and establishing normalized relations. And that domino was incredibly close to falling this year. In late last year, there were a lot of signs that Saudi Arabia was finally going to crack and they were finally going to change their position and give Israel diplomatic recognition. And this for the Hamas group was a big problem. You see, if Hamas, every time an Arab nation recognizes Israel's right to exist and acknowledges that it's not all just Palestine, but Israel has a place to be as well, every time that happens, that puts Hamas further and further away from their goal, which is to wipe Israel out and claim the whole land as a new Palestine. And if one of the last major holdouts, Saudi Arabia, finally caved in and acknowledged it, why, they would lose a lot of potential supporters throughout the Middle East. They would be seen as dinosaurs of a bygone conflict. For Hamas, they had to do something to stop that process and damage that process of Israeli recognition as much as they possibly could. These attacks weren't about taking out the Israeli government. They weren't about change or holding on to land or doing anything. It was about inciting a massive overreaction or even an appropriate reaction, if you will. But at any rate, it was about getting the cameras on Israel while they bombed the shit out of Gaza. And it's kind of worked exactly the way they planned. Israel has taken a huge amount of condemnation from the international community. Israel has hit civilian targets. They just have. And whether it's by accident or whether it's by design will be a subject for the historians to debate. But the bottom line is when you're launching airstrikes and ground invasions of a place as densely populated as Gaza Strip, there's going to be significant civilian casualties. So let's not kid ourselves. That was likely to happen. But that's what Hamas wanted. They wanted that to happen so they could put it on TV and show the whole world just how big and evil and bad Israel really was and how they were the victim. And then what started happening? Well, now all of a sudden, these Arab nations that are friendly with Israel are starting to go, whoa, 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 you guys need to throttle it back. You're killing a lot of innocent Arabs over there. Israel, and of course, 
Netanyahu, who, by the way, is facing an election this year that is one that he's not, um, you know, he's having to have a coalition government to rule. So he's got his own political stuff happening, too. He needs to be seen by his people as hitting back fucking hard. So he has to ignore what these Arab countries are saying, but that's ruining Israel's relationship with their neighbors. Most of the Arabic countries that are on good terms with Israel are going, listen, we need you to dial back the aggression. We understand you were attacked. You've got to dial it back. But Israel legitimately needs to strike back and show that this sort of thing won't be tolerated. It's a catch-22. And that's exactly what Hamas wanted. And even Saudi Arabia has said that as long as there's a conflict and an Israeli presence in Gaza Strip, there's no path forward for Saudi recognition of Israel. Hamas succeeded in stopping the advancement of Israeli recognition with Arab states right in its tracks, and in some cases even pushing it back and making it harder and harder to the point where some nations have threatened to walk back their acknowledgement of Israel if this doesn't come to a halt soon. And that is what Hamas wanted. That's what they needed. They needed a spectacle to make Israel look like a monster so they could put the brakes on Israel gaining further and further diplomatic recognition and building alliances and good working relationships with their neighbors. So that's what they were in for. That's what they were trying to do. How does this benefit Iran? Well, simple enough. Iran doesn't want Israel to exist, and Hamas is all for that. So, of course, they're natural bedfellows. So what about what about Hezbollah? What's going on there? So Hezbollah, and we've covered them quite a bit uh, in an episode a few months back uh, where we talked about the, um, the gas fields there in the Mediterranean right off the coast of Israel. So if you want the deep dive on the history there, it's a two-parter. Go back, check it out. Uh, it'll it'll give you all the context. But basically, in a nutshell, Hezbollah is similar to Hamas in the sense that it's a lot of former Palestinian and various other Arab militants that went north instead of into Gaza Strip or West Bank. They uh, were in Jordan for a while, but they got kicked out of there because they were too much of a troublemaker. And they proceeded to just start stirring shit up along the northern border with Israel and Lebanon. And uh, whenever Israel, again, would do the thing that they always do, and that is hit back hard because Israel's philosophy when it comes to national defense is kind of like, um, what was that movie? What was that mob movie? Was it Goodfellas? Uh, you put one of ours in the hospital, we put two of yours in the morgue. You, you know that quote? I think that's good. Is that Goodfellas? I think it is. Uh, somebody write me in and tell me if I'm wrong on that, but I think I'm right on that one. I think it's Goodfellas. Anyway, that's basically the IDF's MO, right? You hit us, we're going to hit you back twice as hard and twice as main. That's that's just how they do. And these guys, same as Hamas, leverage the same tactic. They would go into Israel, they would wreck some shit, they would flee back the border to um, to Lebanon, which was already an unstable and struggling government. Israel would go into Lebanon, blow a lot more shit up, cause a lot more destruction and, uh, and aggression, and then... Hezbollah would come out and say, oh, my God, look how terrible they are. They're way overreacting. These evil people. And um, they would stir up the local population and get them on their side and win them over. And that uh, eventually led them to, again, pulling Hamas and getting themselves elected into the government. Now, Hezbollah doesn't have a clad iron grip on the government of Lebanon as much as uh, Hamas does over the Palestinian uh, 
you know, governing apparatus. But they have enough of a say to be a serious player and steerer of that government. And um, again, same basic thing. What does uh, Iran get out of this? They get somebody who frustrates the United States, frustrates Israel, and is theologically aligned with them in the sense that they want to see Israel wiped out and have a more theocratic, hard-ass Islamic state uh, in existence in both Lebanon and and elsewhere. So they're aligned in that fashion, and uh, that's what they're going for. Then you've got the Houthis in Yemen. So the Houthis in Yemen, and you know, we've got the whole naval blockade going on uh, currently with them and, and that whole thing in the news. So we've got that. But the Houthis were less about stabbing the U.S. in the eye back when they became a real issue. And again, it's a, a resistance group that found its way into power and has fought in a civil war in Yemen for a number of years, a rather brutal civil war, where they control a good chunk of the country, although not quite all of it. In fact, Yemen has a very nasty, something like five-way civil war going on that the Houthis are more or less winning uh, in as much as the situation is stabilized. But the problem is the Houthis were more of an irritation for the Saudi government than the U.S. government. Uh, The Saudis did not want the Iranian revolution that close to their border, which Yemen and Saudi Arabia share a hell of a long border. And for Iran, that was a great foothold on the Saudi Arabian Peninsula. And for Saudi, that was a very real and present danger to the monarchy was this hard-ass theological uh, revolution showing up on their doorstep. So Saudi did a lot of aerial campaigns, a lot of military campaigns to try and stamp it out with very little success. And Iran was all too happy to back the Houthis because it was part of their exported revolution. So What's happening now? Why are they involved in all this shit? Well, both Hezbollah and the Houthis feel that uh, they are more or less opposed to Israel, same same as everyone else, and they feel like they need to do something to show solidarity with their brothers in arms. And so, when Hezbollah, or excuse me, when Hamas went and did this uh, this attack on Israel, and then Israel reprised and struck back very heavily, they came back and said, oh, see, they're terrible. We are going to stand in solidarity with our Palestinian brothers and sisters, really our Hamas brothers and sisters, since that's truly who's the enemy here. And they're going to launch attacks. Now, for Lebanon and Hezbollah, that was having border skirmishes and launching the occasional rocket over the northern border here and there. Um, But for the Houthis, who are all the way over at the, you know, in Yemen, well, they aren't close enough to do that. But what they can do, and what they have done, is attack shipping in the Red Sea. They have a shit ton of Iranian-supplied weapons, and their stated objective is they're going to blow up tankers and transport ships that are going through the Red Sea and using the Suez Canal if they suspect in any way, shape, or form that they are at all uh, in any way, possibly benefiting Israel. Now, their definition of benefiting Israel, by the way, is extremely liberal. Uh, basically, I think they're just picking chips at random and saying, "Let's we can hit that one, let's blow the fucker up or try to. 
At any rate, this has caused a massive public outcry. A lot of corporations are wanting more defense, which has led the U.S. to send naval assets into the area and start shooting down Houthi drones and missiles, which in turn has caused the Houthis to start threatening to, and in a few cases, actually try to lob missiles at U.S. boats, uh, which thus far, they've not managed, at least as of this recording, to hit a U.S. warship, but God help them when they do. Ultimately, their increased attacks caused the U.S. to conduct airstrikes in Yemen, um, and further airstrikes have happened since then. But at the end of the day, the motivation is slightly different for the Houthis. The Houthis are trying to establish some degree of enforced diplomatic recognition. And a good example of what they're trying to accomplish is kind of like what the Taliban accomplished just a couple of years ago in Afghanistan. The Taliban is universally despised by everyone. Hell, even Iran doesn't like the Taliban. They are uh, pariahs. But we've all collectively been forced to accept the fact that the Taliban controls Afghanistan and that they are the government of that country, as terrible as that is. And having fought the original Taliban in Afghanistan myself back in the early 2000s, I'm not thrilled to see them there. But I'm not going to go on that rant today. Anyway, the point is, they swept through that country, took it over as the U.S. was moving out, and by hook or by crook, claimed that country. And nobody could do a goddamn thing to stop them, which resulted in the world being forced to accept their control of that nation. The Houthis are trying to pull the exact same stunt here. And what they get out of this is not only beefing up their street cred with the other Arabic and especially Axis of Resistance organizations, but, uh, you know, by supporting the Palestinian cause, but also they get to show Iran that, hey, look, we're poking the U.S. in the eye and we're agitating things for them, which is part of what you want as part of your, you know, uh, strategic objective, getting the U.S. out of the Middle East so that they can really get that uh, revolution exported at full tilt. But also, uh, eventually, they want to prove that they are a force to be reckoned with. And that will give them the legitimacy, quote unquote, that they want. So that's ultimately what they're trying to accomplish. And then you have the Islamic resistance of Iraq, which is basically a Iranian-backed group that's goal is purportedly to get the U.S. the hell out of Iraq or Iraq. Uh, yeah, I know. I'm all over the place with my pronunciation of that. Um at any rate, their state goal is for the U.S. to leave the country. There's still a few thousand troops there, and you know the Islamic resistance of Iraq is is trying to get them out, and that's that's supposed to be the plan. And ultimately, they want a more hard-ass uh, Islamic-style religious theocracy to be the government in place, which of course falls in line with two things Iran wants. So, you know, hey, they're backing them as well. Not to mention, they help make sure that there's facilitation for Iranian things like weapons and whatnot moving through Iraq to all the places where they have their other little proxy forces like Hamas, uh, like Hezbollah, etc. So this is ostensibly what they're all about. And again, the Islamic resistance uh, of Iraq, they're going to jump in on this for much the same reason. They want that legitimacy, when they want that street cred, they want to <clears throat> try and uh, bolster their legitimacy with these other resistance groups and these other these other forces. So therein is kind of a brief summary of the major players 
on this side of it, but there are just a few others. For instance, there's the Islamic State of Iraq and the Levant, or uh, previously known as ISIS, today just referred to as the Islamic, referred to as the Islamic State. They're a bit of a special case because if you think Iran is a hard-ass religious theocracy, these guys are way, way worse. They're so bad that even Iran designates them as terrorists and wants them wiped out. And if you are such a hard-ass Islamic radical that Iran thinks that you are too much, then you are a fucking problem. And that's what the Islamic State is. Uh, And, in fact, Iran's been hit internally by terrorist attacks from the Islamic State several times. And multiple times in the past couple of weeks, Iran has lobbed missiles and done airstrikes in Pakistan and Afghanistan and Iraq to target, ostensibly, Islamic State apparatuses that they feel are threatening them or were part of their terrorist attack. So this is a real problem. Um, But it's important to note the Islamic State is wicked an enemy of Iran. And uh, yeah, so that's something. But that brings us to our last question of this particular evening, and that is how much control does Iran actually have over these groups? Now, whenever the news says, you know, Iran is denying that they have any direct control, that you know, and that is, of course, the, the party line that Iran's giving. Oh, well, you know, we, we don't have any direct control from them. They do whatever the hell they want. What can be done? We had nothing to do with this. You would expect Iran to say that. And a great number of people, at least Americans that I talked to about this, kind of roll their eyes and go, of course, Iran is telling them what to do. But I'm going to offer a suggestion, uh, an alternate theory Maybe they're not. Now, before you all start clutching your pearls, let me explain. There's no doubt that Iran has supplied these guys with weapons. There's no doubt that their Quds forces supplied them with unconventional warfare training, logistical help, probably even helping teach them how to plan tactical operations. But keep in mind, it's very possible that this whole thing is kicked off without as much Iranian interest in it as one might think. Iran does not want a direct conflict with the United States. They want to be seen as resisting the U.S. They want that street cred. They want that that umph in their step. But they don't actually want a direct, real, honest-to-God shooting war with the United States or with any Western coalition of nations because they would lose. The math is simple. Any of these regimes, Kim Jong-un, Iran, any of them, they exist to propagate themselves. And in Iran's case, there's probably more religious stuff going on in the background. But at the end of the day, the, the whole operation exists to propagate itself. And going into a war that would destroy your regime is counter to what your regime ultimately wants. They want to piss off the U.S. at every opportunity just short of an actual war. And the problem is that a lot of these smaller groups that are fighting for legitimacy and control of their own individual nations and all of this, who Iran have been backing, they are not receiving everyday direct orders, right? They're not military units of Iran. They're not uh, directly in control of the Iranian uh, Guard Corps. They're not subunits of that. They are independent operators who are backed by Iran, but who are still operating and doing things that they want to do. And Iran 
probably doesn't mind some of the conflict happening, but it does spread them thin. It, thin. it forces them to be involved in all of this on some level, and it also forces them to have to try and moderate these groups when they go too far. And I think there is some element of these groups going too far in a way that Iran is not necessarily thrilled about. Take the Red Sea situation with the Houthis. China sent an envoy to Iran and basically told them, you need to rein in your people because it's fucking up our shipping apparatus. Now, Iran has very few allies in the world, and China is easily one of the few they have and arguably the most powerful ally they have. And if China is getting pissed off by what the Houthis are doing, that's a problem. But it goes to show the Houthis are doing what they want to do, not necessarily what Iran wants. Now, Iran is in a tricky situation because they can't walk back their support of their groups because then they lose that leverage that they have over the other groups. They lose some of the allies that they've that they've spent time growing and developing. But at the same time, they do need to throttle them back and restrain them somewhat because the last thing they need is to lose their alliance with China. And it's a bigger issue than that. These groups could inadvertently get a actual shooting war between Iran and the U.S. kicked off by virtue of what they're doing. Iran was very coached in the way they talked about these groups operating and distancing themselves from, listen, we had nothing to do with this. We don't think you should strike those groups. But if you do strike anyone, it is those proxy groups and not us you should be hitting. It's effectively what they were saying. They want to make sure that they are not backed into a corner where the only option they have is an armed conflict with the U.S. The other thing is, when they can use the diplomatic wins of these other groups operating internally to try and pacify their people who are uh, not exactly thrilled with the way things are going inside of Iran, they need that win as well. But it's a fine balancing act that they're trying to maintain here, and it's very possible they're going to overextend themselves. So there's that. The other thing I would point out to is, We always talk about the Iranian proxies, but let's keep in mind, at least for my U.S. audience, there's U.S. proxies all over the world doing things, and they don't always exactly act in a way that we would prefer. So before anyone rolls their eyes when Iran says, we don't have direct control over them, they sometimes just do whatever the fuck it is they decide to do, just remember, almost everyone, even Democrats and Republicans, want Israel to succeed and protect themselves, but a great many of them would rather Israel was more surgical in their response against Hamas, because this is causing a lot of political issues. But Netanyahu's made it very clear he's going to prosecute this as hard as he possibly can and to whatever extent he can for as long as he can to accomplish his objectives of taking out Hamas. He's acting in his own direction. The U.S. has given him guidance of what we would like to see, which is more surgical options, but he's not interested in that. They've given him guidance that we'd like to see some sort of peace talks happen, but he's not going to do that until he gets his hostages back. He may be a uh, the leader of a U.S.-backed country, i.e. effectively a proxy in the region, but he's going to do what is, in his mind, best for his country, regardless of what pressure we're putting on him. And of course, the U.S. isn't going to roll back all of its support for Israel. But at the same time, the U.S. can't control Netanyahu. 
we can't order him to do anything. He's a going to do what he wants to do. And I think it's a very similar case with a lot of these proxies. Iran is going to do what the U.S. is doing with theirs. They're going to say that we back them, we support them and all of this, but we don't control them. And I do think there is, I think there's an element of truth to that. You could make the same thing with Ukraine. The U.S. has put a lot of resources into the Ukraine resistance against the Russian invasion and all of that. But at the end of the day, there have been a lot of generals who have said there's different ways we would have prosecuted the counteroffensive that might have gone better. Ukraine wanted to do it their way. Yep, they're people, they have free agency, that country can do things even if we don't think it's the best idea, and even though we are helping support them, that doesn't mean we're giving them direct orders that they have to follow. And I really do believe that there is an element of that at play with Iran. They don't want this to escalate to a war that's an actual conflict with the U.S., and they are probably on some level worried that some of these groups are edging them into that corner a little bit closer than they'd like. But how do they get around it? Okay, so hopefully this all paints a clearer picture of what's going on and who the players are in the current Middle East crisis. I appreciate the question coming in. And um, yeah, you guys let me know what you think about this one. And other than that, I guess it's just time to wrap this thing up. So this is Jordan Driscoll reminding you, if you want a coffee mug, go get a coffee mug. See you guys on the next one. Join us again next week on Context is for Kings, an OGGN production. To learn more, go to OGGN.com 